Please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1. I want to begin by asking you a question. If your house was on fire, what would you take with you first? Most people, when they're asked that question, they say, well, I'd get the photographs, right? I'd get, you know, wedding albums and albums of of our kids and all that kind of thing. And I I hear that, I say, well, wouldn't you get the kids first? Wow, okay, okay. I get the, you know, the, the people first and then the pictures of the people, right? That's what I'd grab. I would, I would get the people first. I'd go after uh, my children, my spouse. You know, even if the house is falling down around me and flames are everywhere, I, it's settled. And I, I would give my life for my family. Why? Because they're my most precious possession. They're, they're, they're the greatest treasure that I have. I would, I would give my life for them. It's easy to say that, isn't it? They're easy words to say. My daughter actually tells me that Bruno Mars would catch a grenade for his girlfriend, but I, I don't, I'm not buying it, right? I don't think he really would. I think it's just words. What would you give your life for? I mean, really, what do you love so deeply that you would sacrifice, suffer, and even die? Apostle Paul says he would give his life for the gospel. In fact, over and over and over again, he did. He put his life on the line for the gospel. Over and over, he suffered for the gospel. In fact, as he writes the book of 2 Timothy, the letter to Timothy, his his second letter, it's the final letter that he would write. He's writing it from a Roman prison. He does not expect to leave. He expects that he will die. And in fact, uh, he did. This is right at the very end of Paul's life. He didn't just say it in his words, but he actually gave his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's encouraging Timothy, saying, Timothy, this, this gospel that you have, it's, it's such a precious treasure. Love it, live for it, give your life for it. Timothy, there's nothing that you have that is more valuable. Chapter one, verse eight, he says, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy, this is your treasure. This is your treasure. The gospel is a priceless treasure. The gospel is a treasure beyond comparison to anything else. So what do we mean by the gospel? Gospel is a word that we use inside the walls of this place frequently in all of our Bible studies. We're talking about that kind of thing. But, you know, we walk out and we interact with the world and we don't use the gospel much, right? We don't talk about the gospel but in biblical terms, it's a really common word. It simply means good news, right? Or, or the glad announcement. And it refers to a lot of things in the Bible. It could be the, the glad announcement that the king has just won a victory, that the nation is safe. That's a glad announcement. Or that a shipment of gold has come in. That's gospel. That's good news. Or a, a child has been born. The announcement, the tidings are considered gospel, good news. But if you look in the Bible after the birth of the church, gospel takes on a very specific meaning. And it's centered in the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul elaborates on what he means by gospel in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. This is the treasure. He says, Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel, Paul says, demolishes death. The gospel is that which saves us from death because death is destroyed. Read with me again verse 10. Jesus, he abolished death 
And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Uh, Death is another kind of biblically complicated term. We hear the word death and we think immediately of physical death, right? The separation of the inner man and the outer man, of, the, of body and spirit. Uh, we, we see it frequently in our experience. So when we think death, we think physical death. And certainly the gospel saves us from physical death. We may die physically, but as we'll talk about in a few moments, we will be raised and we won't be subject to physical death again. We will have physical life and spiritual life that goes on forever. But the gospel does so much more than that. Death is actually uh, described in in three different terms, physical death, but then also uh, spiritual death. Paul talks about spiritual death in Ephesians 2 verse 1. He said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's not talking about physical death. You're physically alive, but you were born into this world having spiritual death, physical life, but spiritual death. That is, you're born separated from God. You looked at everything through the lens of self. Uh, your mind, your, your emotions, your will, everything that you did ran through this filter of what was best for you and rejected God. That, that's, that's separation. And spiritual death, born separated from God. And if that condition continues throughout a person's life, and they end life spiritually separated, they will experience a, a third form of death, which actually in the book of Revelation is called the second death. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We sometimes call that uh, Gehenna or hell. If the problem of spiritual death, being born separated, is not solved in this lifetime, we enter into an eternity of eternal separation from God. But you know, that's not what God made men and women for. God made men and women for life. That's what God designed us for, to experience his life in ourselves. So reading again, verse 10. He abolished death in Christ. That word means uh, to to render ineffective or to uh, take out of the way. Death is like this roaring lion and Christ reaches in and, and, and punches all the teeth out of death. It might still sound frightening to you, but there is no reason to fear because death has been demolished, obliterated, rendered ineffective and powerless in the face of Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. He gave in to death so that he could conquer death. He died a death for us and in That death defeated death altogether because he rose from the dead and demonstrated that God had the power over even death. As Jesus would say of himself in the book of Revelation, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. He says, yeah, I was dead. But I died so that I could defeat death. And having defeated death, death can no longer touch me. And if you are in me, death cannot touch you. You might physically die as I did, but then you will be raised forever and you will have life that lasts forever. The gospel demolishes death. The gospel imparts everlasting life. He demolished or obliterated or abolished death, rendering it ineffective and powerless, and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, when I was in seminary, I had uh, a few roommates that were uh, less than neat, <laughs> slobs. I mean, really, they're just not, these are not, not really careful, clean kind of guys. And I, I remember, um, at one point in time, there was something in our refrigerator that was just starting to smell. And um, 
college ladies, I'm just going to pull back the veil on the male soul for you for just a minute. If there's, there's something smelling in the refrigerator, the male solution for it is hold your breath, open the door quickly, and close it quickly. Right? That's how, we, that's how you solve something smelly in the fridge. And um, I'm just telling you that because someday uh, you may get married and you have to civilize this uh, other human that's living with you. And you say to yourself, you say, well, why, Brian? Why? Why, do they, why, why, don't, why don't they just clean it out? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> right? We don't think that far ahead, right? There's an easier solution. Just open it and close it quickly, right? However, in this particular case, the smell, you know, just continued to get just really so bad, right? And, you know, you just couldn't close it quickly enough. It's just starting to permeate the whole thing. So we had to actually break down and use a longer-term solution. We pulled everything out of the fridge, right? And lo and behold, in the back of the fridge, we found it. I don't know what it was, but it was a food, some food item that had become, you know, indistinguishable of what it actually was, and it was dying, right? It was just this dying, this slow death of decay. That's actually the word that Paul uses here in 2 Timothy. He says, the life that God gives you is, my translation reads immortal, it's actually imperishable, right? Not subject to to decay, right? It, it can't be touched by death any longer. We call it eternal life because it can't be touched by death. Therefore, it will go on forever and ever and ever. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul describes this life. He says, this perishable must put on the imperishable. That is this body that is subject to the first form of death, physical death. It is perishing. It's growing old. It is decaying. This perishable has to put on a body that is, in fact, imperishable and untouchable by death. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality... Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death has been defeated. Death has been abolished. Death has been obliterated and life has come and it's life that lasts forever. That's the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how does it work? How is it that God saves us from death? Normally when I ask this question, people say, well, my faith saves me. I say, well, you're close, but not quite. Faith does not save you. God saves you, right? God saves you. You are saved because God is more powerful than death. Read with me again, chapter one, verse eight. He says, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who saved us. Faith can't save you, but God can save you. God is the only one who is stronger than death. And so it's not the strength of your faith or the weakness of your faith, that puts you in a safe place or a dangerous place, it is the power of God to conquer death on your behalf. And he does so because he is gracious. Chapter 1, verse 9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all of eternity. Paul says, the reason that God chose to act in power toward you and crush death on your behalf is because God is gracious. He looked down upon you and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, deserving of punishment, unable to rescue yourself, but God loves enemies. God loves the broken. God loves sinners. And he loves them 
without condition. That's what grace means. Undeserved, unmerited favor and blessing from God because that's from the heart of God. Right? And we talked about this this summer. We don't tend to love this way so, so completely and unconditionally and loyally, but this is how God loves. That's what grace means. Uh, we are Grace Bible Church. Didn't choose our name accidentally. You'll hear us talking a lot about the grace of God because in my opinion, that's the most powerful theological principle for transforming a life. When you know that you are utterly and completely loved by God forever, in spite of the fact that you're not really good at cleaning up your act, he still chooses you and loves you. That is such a powerful motivator to love God in return. And nothing is more powerful. You are saved by the power of God according to or consistent with his gracious character through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Notice again verse 9. It says, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all of eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? For all of eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit had determined that they would shower grace upon us and they would do it through the work of Christ. But it happened in a moment in time through the appearing of Christ when the Son of God took on human flesh so that he could suffer and die. Right? God became incarnate. God became uh, in flesh so that he could suffer, so that he could die on our behalf. That is how deeply God loves us. That is how deeply God treasures us. Now, how do we enjoy that wonderful treasure? Well, we respond in faith. Faith doesn't save us, but faith is the way that we respond to receive the treasure. Faith is simply reaching out to God and saying, God, thank you for this gift that I do not deserve. Thank you for loving me in spite of myself. Thank you for continuing to be faithful to me in spite of my unfaithfulness. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for taking away the debt of my sins. Thank you. That's what faith is. It's just reaching out and receiving a gift. It's not something good that you do. It's not cleaning up your act first. It's saying, I'm not capable of changing, but you can change me, and you can forgive me, and you can make me new. Philippian jailer asked this of Paul. He said, Paul, what must we do to be saved? And he said, it's simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Maybe this morning uh, you, you have not made that decision yourself. Maybe you've been around the church and around gospel talk and God talk for much of your life. Maybe it's the first time you've ever heard it. Let me encourage you, this morning could be a really wonderful moment for you when you just simply reach out to God and say, thank you. Thank you for dying for my sins. Now, if you're new to Grace Bible Church, uh, you should know something. Every Sunday, I will present the gospel. Okay, every Sunday, I will present the gospel. Because I don't know each of you personally and individually, so I don't know where you are spiritually. So anytime I'm in a room of people that I don't know everyone, man, I look for a way to get to present the gospel. And it's funny, you know, the gospel always seems to fit into my sermons. Or I'll make it fit, right? So you're always going to hear the gospel. One of the things that means as well is if you have a friend who doesn't know the Lord and you want to bring that friend, they will hear the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. And it's the only power of salvation to anyone, anyone who believes. In other words, the gospel is uh, incomparable. Listen to Paul's description, chapter 1, verse 14. He says, Timothy, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that has been entrusted to you. That is literally uh, the beautiful entrustment. Timothy, this this beautiful entrustment guarded. It's a precious treasure. As Jesus would say, it's like a pearl of great price. 
And more valuable than anything a, a man could possibly possess. It's like a treasure that a man, man found and he hid it in the field. And then he sold absolutely everything just so that he could possess that one treasure. Jesus says, I am that treasure. The I, I am the gospel. I am more valuable than anything else. Men and women, the gospel is more valuable than anything else that you possess. Right? The gospel is more important than any cause you could give your life to. It's more important than any political cause or social cause. It's more important than than racial reconciliation or economic equality or a clean environment or good air or health care for all. All of those things are great things and they're wonderful causes. But at the end of the day, the only thing that has supreme value more than anything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, Timothy, love the gospel. Live for the gospel. Give your life, Timothy, for the gospel. And then share it without shame. If the gospel is truly this valuable, then share it. Because as you share it, you will not be diminished. It's a gift that just gives and gives and grows and grows. Chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. The word that's used here for uh, testimony, it's also translated witness. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus told his disciples, you shall be my witnesses. You shall be the ones who give testimony to me in Jerusalem, Judea, to the uttermost parts of the earth. You will be testifiers. Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. The work evangelist actually is from the same root word for gospel. An evangelist is simply one who tells the Glad tidings are the good news. It's a gospel teller. Paul says, do this, Timothy, without shame. Don't be embarrassed of the gospel. Or if we can put it positively, be proud of the gospel, right? We, we share news that we're proud of, right? We share uh, information if, if we're proud of it. We, we don't, we don't want to hold it back. We want to tell other people about it so they can join in our joy about this good news that we have, right? Uh, Tim got a motorcycle uh, last year. And you know what? Even while he was down at, at the Harley shop, he was sending me pictures. He hadn't even signed the paperwork yet, but he wanted to share the gospel of Harley, right? Here's good news, and he wanted all to know about it, right? When, ladies, when somebody gets engaged, when your friend gets engaged, right, they don't say, oh, I have nothing to tell. <laughs> I know. Man, we got to talk about this, right? Got to talk about it. Got to tell people. Uh, even guys get excited about their engagement. Remember a few years ago, I had a friend, uh, and he wasn't engaged yet, but he was planning on getting engaged, and he didn't have really great verbal self-control, so he kept telling people, I'm going to get engaged. I'm, getting, I'm like, hey, dude, relax. You know, just... <laughs> You may want to keep that to yourself for a little while, you know, because the outcome's not secure just yet. No, I'm getting engaged. I'm getting engaged. In fact, he carried around pictures of the ring itself, right? He had photographs of the ring because, again, ladies, another, you know, peer into the, the, the soul of man. Every man becomes an expert on diamonds for about six months <laughs> and then forgets everything, right? But um, we, we all become experts. Remember, there are four C's of the diamond. Any, anybody help me out? Remember the four C's, right? Carrot. Clarity, cut, and color. All right, well done. So, ladies, if there were any guys around you who just knew all four, I'm just saying, you know what's on their mind, right? <laughs> the older guys are like, four C's. Yeah. I'm convinced, uh, I'm convinced, actually, that uh, 
grandparents learn how to use a smartphone just so that they can carry around pictures of grandkids. That's why they get a smartphone, right? Because I've got gospel, gospel of my grandchild, gospel of my granddaughter, my grandson, right? It's good news and I got to tell people about it. If you're proud of something, you don't hide it. You declare it. Paul says, don't be ashamed, or can we say it positively? Timothy, be proud of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God for salvation. It's a limitless treasure. It's a limitless treasure. So why would we be ashamed of the gospel? Have you ever been ashamed of the gospel? There's a moment to to stand up and declare that you are with Christ, to speak a word about Christ. Have you, have you ever felt ashamed of the gospel? Why is that? Why does that hit our hearts? Well, let me come at it from a different angle. Um, let me come at it from the opposite angle for a second. What, what's your most embarrassing moment? Your most, your most shameful moment? You just meditate on that for just a minute, right? I mean, as you're thinking about that, I'll, I'll tell you one of mine. Um, this is about, I don't know, a few years back, I was invited by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship to go up to the MSC. They were doing an evangelistic event, and they were all inviting uh, their friends who didn't know Jesus, and they wanted me to come in and uh, present the gospel. So uh, they did, you know, the preliminary stuff, made everybody feel comfortable in the room, and then it was my turn to speak. And um, this, the room's been totally remodeled now, but uh, it was the second floor of the MSC, and on the front of the stage, there were no steps. So you had to go to the sides to go up onto the steps to get onto the stage. Well, I was sitting right here, and I thought, I'll just jump onto the stage. But I didn't, I, didn't quite, I didn't quite clear. I caught my toe, and in front of about 300 students, I was just, psh, I was just yard sale, right? Bibles here, notes here. I just, psh, everywhere. No recovery, right? There was no graceful recovery. I couldn't like, hey, I was trying to do that, right? It's an illustration of, I don't know. You know, it's just, there you go. Um, I had another embarrassing moment, and I, I can't remember if I've told this story before or not, but um, this was actually worse. Summer after freshman year, I was working at, at Pine Cove, but before camp started, I went to Guatemala, and I brought back a friend from Guatemala. My friend's name was Giardia. And Giardia, if you're unfamiliar with that, is an intestinal parasite that I brought back with me. And it doesn't hit you just like immediately, it just kind of slowly churns and grows inside of you. So I went to Tyler, uh, went through the training for camp, I got my first group of kids, and you know, all the while I'm just kind of feeling worse and worse and worse. And I remember one day, first week I had my kids, we're, we're out in the field, we're playing games with hundreds of other kids, and all of a sudden, man, the friend just said, mm, here we go. I mean, just, just attacked, and I thought, oh no, I don't know if, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it, right? So I just started running. I just ran, you know, and as a counselor runs away from all of his campers, everybody just stops, and they're just staring at me. The game stops, everything stops, they're just watching me, and I'm just running, like, I don't know, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. I'm not making it. I didn't make it. I didn't make it. It was horrible. It was a horrible, horribly embarrassing moment, right? Most embarrassing moment. All right, so this morning what I thought I would do is open mic. (laughs) Nah, just kidding. You ever been at parties where they say, hey, let's all do our most embarrassing moment? I'm like, what? That's, the, that's such a stupid thing. Why would, why would we want to do that? But I don't want to tell a story that reflects poorly on me. Why do I feel shame or embarrassment? Because association with something or someone reflects poorly on me. So I don't want to talk about that. 
I had another friend in seminary who, he, he didn't have great social boundaries, right? He was a real close talker and loud talker, so he'd get right up on you in your face. And if you're eating a meal, he'd just talk, talk with his mouth open. It's just, it's like, you know, he was a great private friend, but not maybe a public friend. Because if you brought him in public, I don't want, oh, that didn't reflect good on me. That's embarrassing. Right? We get embarrassed because we think something will reflect poorly on us. You know what, the gospel has a few elements that in our culture might reflect poorly on us if we stand for the gospel. Right? Really seriously, you believe in heaven and hell. You, you really seriously believe in a literal heaven and hell? Okay, it's bad enough that you believe God exists, but you believe in a literal heaven and hell? You believe that there's only one way to that God who I don't even think exists? Seriously. Really. We might not be imprisoned or suffered or, or die, but... People will try to shame us for the gospel. When I was a kid, I had an imaginary friend. I used to think that he went everywhere with me, that I could talk to him, that he could hear me, and that he could grant me wishes and stuff. And then I grew up and I stopped going to church. And that's Jimmy Carr. He's an atheist and he loves making fun of Christians. You know what, students? Uh, you're going to hear that. You're going to run into wonderful, godly Christian professors on campus and wonderful, godly Christian students that you can have fellowship with, but you are also going to be attacked for your faith. And you better be ready for it. And you better decide ahead of time that you will, in fact, identify and stand for Jesus Christ. And take the shame that the world tries to throw at you. You know, it's always been this way. It was this way as well in Timothy's day. He was anxious and frightened, timid about standing for the gospel because people tried to shame him for the gospel. Really, Timothy, you believe in a resurrection from the dead? To the Greek mindset, that was absolutely, utterly foolish. It's ridiculous. People die, they go to the grave, that's it. Remember when Paul first started preaching about resurrection? They thought he was talking about a God named resurrection. A God named Anastasia. When they actually found out that he was talking about a literal resurrection of people from the dead, they just laughed in his face. Well, you believe God became man? And there's a God-man who's both God and man. Well, for the Greek, you know, they could actually live with something like that. In their mythology, sometimes the gods would cohabitate with mankind and there would be these God-men hybrids. So they could accept that, but Jews could not. That was blasphemy. There's God and there's man. You know what? Timothy was half Jewish and half Greek. So he was getting it from both sides. And he was threatened. And he was tempted to feel ashamed of the gospel. And Paul says, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel, right? Treasure the gospel. Read with me again, verse eight, chapter one. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So word testimony, we said, also is translated witness. It is literally in Greek, martyr. It's a Greek word for martyr. Because if you give testimony or you give witness to something that is unpopular in your culture, you will suffer. It, it may just be ridicule, but it might be punishment and imprisonment. And in Paul's case, it was even death. If you stand for something that is unpopular, you will suffer for it. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Why? Because I know whom, that is, I know him. 
I know him in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. See, there's a beautiful play on words here. Paul says, the gospel, Timothy, has been entrusted to us. It is a a beautiful entrustment or a precious treasure. And with that gospel, we give our lives to it, and then we entrust our lives to God, and he can guard the investment that we have made, this entrustment of our lives. He will take it, he will protect it, and you will not be ashamed in the end. Because you've given your life for the gospel. No, but not every Christian is willing to say, yeah, I believe in it that much. I believe the gospel is that precious. It's that valuable that I will stand for it. Read with me in verse 15. Paul tells Timothy, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. How'd you like to be remembered like that? So remember, Paul was in prison in Rome. Ephesus is is the capital of the province of Asia Minor. Apparently, Paul wrote to those believers in Asia Minor in that capital and said, please send some of your leading citizens who are Christians who can testify on my behalf. And you know what? No one came. He says, among whom are these two. How would you like to be remembered like that? On the other hand, he says, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he also rendered at Ephesus. Onesiphorus came to Rome, and he didn't know where I was in prison. So he searched the entire city of Rome to find me. And when he found me, he, he served me. He brought me food. He brought me clothing. He brought me parchments. He served me. He wasn't ashamed of my chains because he wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how I would like to be remembered. Isn't that how you'd like to be remembered? Paul says, share the treasure, Timothy, without shame. Let's go back for a moment to our, our analogy of the, uh, the burning house. Right? It's easy for me to run in and say, yeah, well, say I, I'd run in, I'd rescue my family, right? It's easy to say those words, but, but would I do it? It's easy actually to declare, I think, um, commitment to the big sacrifices. Yeah, I'd give my life. But what about the little sacrifices? I'd give my life for my family, for my wife, for my kids. But what about dying daily? What about daily saying no to self and making those sacrifices? I think it's easy for us to say, yeah, I'd give my life for the gospel. But would you give your reputation for the gospel? Would you suffer just a little bit of shame and embarrassment, and maybe rejection from friends and family for the gospel. See, it's easy to make that great declaration because in our culture, none of us probably will give our lives for the gospel. We probably won't be imprisoned for the gospel, but we will be called upon to die daily and sacrifice by identifying with the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is a frequent theme for Paul because he was always under pressure. In Romans chapter 1, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. This is is the one thing that is so precious because it can rescue us from our greatest enemy, which is death. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that. If I could get the men to go back and prepare for communion, and as they're doing so, would you read with me now chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Retain, Timothy, Hold, hold fast 
the standard of sound or healthy words, like life-giving words. Hold fast to them. These which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. When my kids were little, they had a little treasure. Right? They had a little bit of money in their banks. And I tried to convince them that they should begin the habit of, of putting that money in the bank. I said, you know, it's safer in the bank. Put it in a real bank. And they said, well, Daddy, is it not safe in our house? Is someone going to break in and steal my piggy bank? I go, no, 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 you're, you're, you're safe here too, but it's even safer there, right? They have a big metal vault, and they'll put your money in there. It's really, it's wonderful. And actually, not only that, but if you put your money in there, they'll pay you to hold on to your money. They go, really? How much will they pay us? I go, well, like 0.001%. You know, never mind, never mind. But they will pay you, and they'll hold on to your money. They go, really? They'll just, they just stick all my money right there and keep it? I said, well, actually, no, it's not exactly like that either. They take your money, and then then they let other people borrow your money so that they can buy, you know, a car or a house, or whatever. So, so, Daddy, I give them my money, and then they give my money away to other people. I go, you know, never mind. <laughs> just, just keep it in your piggy bank. Because really, at the end of the day, it's not that great a treasure. It's not that big. And I could replace it quite easily. Why stir up all this fear in my children's hearts, right? Piggy bank's fine. Paul actually is trying to stir up a little fear in us. He's reminding us that the gospel is constantly under attack. Because it's the most precious treasure. It's so valuable that it will always be under attack. From the outside, people will deny the truth of the gospel. They will say, no, there are other ways to God. No, there is no God. Even inside the church, the gospel will be attacked. People are distorting the gospel, adding to the gospel. And it's not just by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. You've you got to kick in. The gospel is continuously under attack because it is the most valuable, precious treasure. And so Paul says, Timothy, love the gospel, right? Share the gospel. Timothy, guard the gospel. Know it, own it, give it. There's nothing you possess that is more valuable. May God stir up our hearts to love the gospel like that. As we close and we share communion together, we have a moment. We can just stop and celebrate, right? The the elements remind us of how much God treasures us. The bread representing the body of Jesus Christ, broken, sacrificed for us. The blood is represented by the cup, poured out for us. Jesus was willing to take on human flesh, suffer and die for us. Why? Because we are considered by him his most precious treasure. So as the men come forward in service, uh, let's just take a few moments and reflect upon the treasure of the gospel of Jesus. And let God's spirit ask you, would you, would you give your life for this treasure? Would you give your, your name, your reputation? How much do you love the gospel of Jesus Christ? The men will serve us and then we'll wait until everyone is ready and we'll take the elements together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread representing his body, he broke it and said, this do in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, the new covenant in his blood, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you that you valued us so deeply. We were your precious treasure that you were willing to give all for us. Uh, not, just, not just words, um, but deep sacrifice. Father, we thank you for your willingness to surrender your son. We rejoice, Father, in, in this precious treasure that we possess through your grace and your kindness to us. 
Father, we celebrate the the precious treasure of the gospel this morning. We pray that you would uh, refresh our hearts with courage uh, to, to love the gospel, to love your son Jesus, to not be ashamed, but to be proud because this is the source of life where you have given us the power to remove the debt of sin and give life forever. I pray, Father, you would give us moments, opportunities, even this week, to stand proudly for the gospel, to declare that this is true. And let us not shrink back in shame, but let us say Jesus is our Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week sharing the gospel.